Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for a brand new episode of Discovery Debrief, your weekly unpacking of the latest trek into the final frontier. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I am joined today, as always, by our wonderful panel, including Rachel Clow. Hi, Chris. Hello, Rachel. Nice to see you again. Zaki Hassan. Hello, hello. And Cicero Holmes. Greetings and salutations. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, you know, I've started the last few episodes of this show by saying, wow, what an eventful episode. But, you know, it's kind of nice to sit back a little bit and say, maybe this wasn't the most eventful episode, but, I mean, there was certainly a lot of cool stuff that happened in it. But uh, we got kind of a done-in-one this past week, which is really cool, especially considering there was a significant amount of our conversation that was oriented around the fact that oh, they don't do episode storytelling anymore. And uh, and we saw a lot of people complaining about that. But of course, before we actually get into the episode discussion, what was the week in Trek like for everybody? So Cicero, why don't we start with you? Because the Orville came back. Yes. And of course, it's greatly descended from Star Trek. So did this week strike you a little bit? I know that you had mentioned to me that the humor for this past week's didn't really uh, sit the best with you but are you getting kind of a trek vibe from the orville going forward total total trek vibe the the humor almost never sits well with me oh really with with the orville i mean it's fine right but like it's it's a lot of it is very sophomoric um it's it's seth mcfarlane you know through and through uh as i've watched the show more i've grown accustomed to what the humor is but if mm-hmm. I, you know, if I, uh, if I replace, uh, put my monocle and type hat back on, I'm like, huh, huh. Uh, <laughs> when, it, when it comes, when it comes to the humor of, uh, of, of the Orville, but the stories, the stories are amazing. And it, it, it really, it really, really, really makes me want to pay money to be in the writer's room when they're coming up with the story premise mm-hmm. and and Seth MacFarlane says okay well now it's time for me to write the dialogue because <laughs> they constantly seem like they're at odds with each other okay interesting but but I, but I still I still like the show yeah sure well and we had watched it cuz uh I didn't realize that it was taking a little bit of a break but Rachel and I sat down and watched it last night last yes. n- yeah last night and, um, Zachy, did you watch the most recent episode of the I'm Orville? I'm so behind on the Orville. I think I'm on like episode three or four. Oh, okay. Well, it, it was very much a, uh, a, a traditional Trek style commentary on a social ill. Yes. And in this case, that social ill was the obsession with, uh, social, social media. media. Yeah. I, I had a student actually come up to him and be like, oh, you need to watch the Orville. And they said exactly this. So, uh, I, oh, okay. either because I teach you know, media and communication, or because they know I'm a Star Trek fan, they they said they brought this to my attention. So uh, I need, need awesome. to watch it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, and and I I definitely enjoyed this past episode. It's uh, for I can see why some people who are thinking that Discovery isn't scratching the Trek itch, why they might be getting that from the Orville. It's a perfectly valid perspective. But uh, this one, I felt it a, a lot stronger, but it also felt modern and different, which was cool. But you, yes. And Rachel, you liked it too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked it. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty fun. But I've wanted to ask 
you this, Zachy, for a week now. Because conceivably now you and the boys have watched Masks <laughs> from Season 7 of Star Trek The Next Generation. So, A, did that take place? And B, how did it go down? And how did it strike your kids and you on a rewatch? So I have not rewatched Masks since it aired back in, you know, oh, wow. 94 or whenever that was. And so, I, you know, it... it it's a terrible episode. Look, there's there's no there's no defending this. I mean, the Enterprise turns into an ancient Aztec temple. I mean, it's like something out of like the the third season of the original show. You know, it's it's just there's no like oh maybe my impression of it was pretty bad. Uh, it 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 wasn't. It's it's just a bad episode. Uh, I give props to Brent Spiner, and I mentioned this in our last episode where they basically just they just backed a truck of brand new characters he had to create the night before. I feel like whoever delivered the script like dropped it at his door and ran away because <laughs> because they knew how pissed he'd be. And it's funny because oh, it the episode shows, I think, the limits of Brent Spiner's considerable talent, which is he's got like five or six voices that he does, and he just kind of rotates through them. And I think it's kind of like, well, he did the very best he could do, but I mean, it's it's they, they expected a lot from him, and it was in service of a garbage script. <laughs> that's that's the problem now now the boys to their credit they're you know they're 10 and 8 so they're you know they're kind of dullards in the sense that they don't know good star trek from bad so th- right. i mean i i love them i love you boys if you're listening to this as grown-ups i want you to know at this stage in your life boys however you are dullards so i mean they they take it for what it is and i'm glad just to be very clear i mean i saw star trek 5 when i was nine and i thought it was the greatest mm-hmm. thing i'd ever seen so so Sure. Uh, you know, I'm. I give them props for just sitting there, being like, "Oh, okay. Oh, look, he's this character now," and they're they're just taking it. But I'm sitting there, like, "Oh God, beam me out of this episode," you know, like, <laughs> you know. Well, and to further your point, I think I was exactly nine when I saw Batman and Robin. There you go. Oh, so uh, it was pretty great. At the uh, seeing Rachel's looking at me because we watched it. We. We actually watched Batman and Robin on our honeymoon because the sun had gone down on Maui. So we were like, what do you want to do? And we're like, well, why don't we watch a movie? So I put this movie on thinking that it would just be like a laugh and terrible and she'd never want to see it again. And she ended up really liking it. I like it. I think <laughs> I will defend Batman and Robin. This probably isn't the place, but to, I, to I will whom? defend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then so two days after that, we went on the Warner Brothers studio tour. And who knew that there was like an entire corner in their Batman room that was dedicated to Batman and Robin. They had the bat hammer from the movie's finale and they had, they had one of the bat bombs and they had the burnerangs that Robin used and that goofy ass picture of poison Ivy and Bane getting off of the plane where he's like in the Dixon Hill coat and hat. (laughs) He looks like Raphael. Yes. 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 Very good connection. Well, uh, everybody freeze. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to say that that Batman and Robin, you could have a drinking game where you take a shot every time there's an ice pun, but you'd be you'd yes. be dead of alcohol poisoning in like in like 17 minutes. <laughs> it's so true. Oh, yeah, those 60s shows with Mr. Freeze, they ring a little bit better. But, of course, I respect and love my wife for, for enjoying Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin is exactly the movie it wants to be. I, you know what, Rachel, that is, yes, that is absolutely right. But, that is absolutely right. But, okay, back to Star Trek. Yes. So, 
Rachel, you're continuing your Deep Space Nine rewatch, yeah. and you have made it now into season four. So the promised land. The promised <laughs> land of season four, where Worf has emerged from the heavens to bring the show into a the new Warp era factor. of prominence. <laughs> Warp Factor That's Five. Right. So, how how is this? Because this is the second time you've watched the show all the way through so far. Yes. And so Worf's introduction, what does it bring to the table? Well, I, 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 Worf, Worf is good. Worf, I, I like him, of course, but like I watched the episode, The Visitor, which doesn't have Worf in it. Oh, it's like, oh my God. I cry like an infant. It was so great. Uh. Yeah. I, I was just so impressed with it and I knew it was good. I remember that it was good, but watching it again, I was just blown away and uh the guy who plays older jake um tony todd mm-hmm. yeah. same is, guy that plays kern he's just so great in everything candy man um yeah yeah so can i you know that episode it's it's so um for me you know having seen it since i became a father it's just interesting how my perspective on it changed so completely i mean i loved it before but i mean looking at it from now cisco's perspective where the idea of skipping past your your kid's life and not being there for all of these moments i mean they're at the very end there's at you know after they've reset the timeline and and jake says to his dad he says are you okay and he says i am now and then his voice cracks just a little he says i am now yeah. I my heart just clenches every time I get to that because I can so relate to that. I so understand that. Right. And and and, and it it also speaks to um why Avery Brooks is still to this day my number one uh commander on Star Trek. Um uh, mm-hmm. just because I think Patrick Stewart, you know, no no uh, no shame to Patrick Stewart, but I think that the greatest actor um, ever to be on Star Trek and in a in a continuing in a continuing capacity is is most definitely Avery Brooks. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a there's a tenderness to Cisco that you don't see in any other captain. You know, I mean, because he he puts on this air of such immense strength, especially in the first season, right? I mean, he is a guy that you clearly do not want to screw with. He'll get in Captain Picard's face. He'll punch Q, right? He does all of these things. But then, you know, the the fatherhood aspect is something that's unique to Cisco, and it brings some really surprisingly intimate character moments for him that you can't really get. And, in, and in I, I think characters. that just in the first five minutes of his character, the way he reacts to his wife being killed, is yes. this just honest expression of emotion that we can all relate to. And to, to your point, I mean, it, it's it's something that the veneer of the Starship Captain doesn't really allow for. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the love uh, of a father for a son. I mean, that's that's the kind of love that, not just Star Trek, but fiction in general, it feels like glosses over, or parent for a child, I should say, you know, that... that the, the kind of mm-hmm. love that transcends time. I mean, it's, uh, I think Deep Space Nine, uh, the totality of Deep Space Nine really uh, addresses that beautifully. Yes. Yeah, and it's just, uh, it, it's, it's 
made pure by the visitor oh, you know yeah. and you know for the record i do think the emissary is probably the best pilot in star trek sure. i mean for exactly the reasons that you guys mentioned i mean it's such a good and strong look at what the show is going to be and it's not it it i don't see any real embarrassing moments like i see in the other pilots <laughs> with the exception probably of discovery right. but uh well as as for me my um my dive into Trek over the last week has actually been examining perhaps the most underappreciated show in the history of the franchise. And that's the animated series. Uh, The animated series is now that it's canonicity is a little more solid than it's been over the last couple of years. You could very much see it as the legitimate fourth year to the, or maybe even a a consolidation of years four and five into captain Kirk's five-year mission and the performances in the animated series range from <laughs> goofy as all hell to legitimately very good. Like I watched uh, yesteryear because there, a moment in the novel that Rachel and I are reading actually directly mentions the events of yesteryear. So I watched the episode again. And that might be one of my favorite adventures of the original crew and specifically of Spock. Um you know, really good and solid look at what his life was like as a child, things that are alluded to in later films and episodes, and uh, and a good explanation for what uh, what sits at the core of his constitution, no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and there's, the a, animated there's a reason, series Chris, of... that that episode was deemed always canonical, at least in terms of the backstory. The, even when the sort of they were mm-hmm. like, oh, we're, we don't know if TAS is considered part of it, but it was always, except for Spock's history shown in, in yesteryear. In yesteryear, yeah. I mean, and it's no mistake, I'm sure. That was the only episode of the series, at least I'm reasonably sure, the only episode of that series that was written by Dorothy Fontana. And she, of course, was a huge credit to the writing staff of the original series. So... Uh, the animated series I cannot recommend enough, especially if – it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild of the Star Trek franchise overall. So if you haven't watched it, highly recommended. Highly recommended. So now why don't we get into some news items because there's quite a lot to get to in this next section. So we want to do a couple of fun things first. In an interview with IndieWire, Shazad Latif commented a little bit more about the theories that are surrounding Lieutenant Ash Tyler and the Klingon Valk. He said, quote, My publicist has told me a lot of some of the stuff that's been going around, and it's kind of great. It's the perfect Star Trek fandom, the biggest, the craziest, the most in-depth and in-detail. It's sort of what we've expected from the Star Trek fans, and it's beautiful. They're so interested in what's going on in the show. Some of the theories are just crazy. Some of them get stuff right, but I'm really enjoying it. I like to retain mystery, and I'd rather just watch the show and see how it plays out. For me, that's more exciting. Basically, a lot of nothing in what he said. (laughs) It was a way for him to technically address the fact that uh, that this is a, a theory that might have some credence to it, but... Not really a lot here, I don't think, Rachel. Yeah, no. Good job. <laughs> Good job, Shazad. That was a, that was a great dance around. It, it, it was. It, that's that's almost on par with the dance around that I got to see Tom Hardy do on the set of The Dark Knight Rises. Because he, he was 
It was actually a really clever misdirection, though, because I asked him about whether or not Bane was as intelligent as he is in the comics in the upcoming movie, and he deviated in a totally unexpected way by saying to me, looking me in the eye, and he's a big guy, you know, shooting the movie, all I can think of is that you're calling me stupid, so I really want to flip the table over and throw you through the window. (laughs) So I just kind of did my salute and said, well, thank you, sir. And then I got to ask him about Star Trek Nemesis. So that and then was, he's like, I want to throw you through the window uh, again after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw you through the pothole. <laughs> <laughs> through the Thaleron generator. Uh, yeah. Well, There's an episode we need to, to do. A, a we... Topic of discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So a totally. uh, question for you guys. Have you not seen or read the interview with Javad Iqbal? No. Uh, no. Well, Please enlighten Neither us. have I, because it doesn't exist. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you well played. <laughs> Chris and I just looked at each other like... <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm not doing my due diligence as the, as the person who's trying to bring the show together, and then you throw that at me. <laughs> it's just nicely done. Very nicely done. Something interesting that I did see, though, uh, Cliff Eidelman who's best known to Star Trek fans as the composer for Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, was apparently in the running for the series' musical composition position while Brian Filler had the show's reins. He was recommended by Discovery Consultant and Star Trek II and VI director Nicholas Meyer, and Eidelman actually created a theme and a couple of other musical tracks, but after Fuller left the show, he kind of fell out of the running. But he did release his crack at the Discovery theme in an EP called into the unknown and he released it on spotify i listened to the first track which i think is what he created as a potential theme for the series and i mean cliff eidelman his music for star trek 6 was very different than someone like jerry goldsmith's uh cracks at the score james horner's i mean it was very sort of darkly percussive i guess if i had to try and describe it and when i listen to this theme i'm probably if I'm speaking honestly, I'm more satisfied with what we have, but it was definitely an interesting perspective on what could have been for this show with more Fuller involvement and potentially more Nicholas Meyer involvement. Did you guys, any of you have a chance to listen to any of the tracks ahead I, of time? I didn't, yeah. I, I uh, just didn't get a chance to go through it. I got... Sure. Yeah, well, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, sister, yeah, I got I got to listen to about 10 or 15 seconds of it, and then it asked me to... Uh, log into a Spotify account, which I haven't done in a oh. long time. So I was like, eh, okay, stay off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's worth listening to just to see what could have been, but I think I'm pretty satisfied with what we have. What did you think, Rachel? Because you listened to it while I did. It's fine. The one they chose is better. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, Eidelman, I always like when there's a little bit of deviation from the norm. So in that respect... You know, I respect the hell out of Cliff Eidelman, especially for what he did for Star Trek VI. But um, the last news item that we're going to cover is something that's actually been in national news over the last few days. And it's a relatively sensitive topic. But uh, Anthony Rapp, who plays Lieutenant Paul Stamets on Star Trek Discovery, and he does a beautiful job of it. He, uh, I'm, I'm, I know that you all who are listening to this and that I'm speaking to right now probably know this, but I'm just going to run through it. He released a statement. Uh, that concerned Kevin Spacey 
making inappropriate sexual advances toward him in 1986. Rap was only 14 and Spacey was 26 at the time. He made the statement concerning this news to BuzzFeed this past Sunday, October 29th. Spacey acknowledged the next day that he owed Rap an apology if he behaved as described, while also saying that he's now chosen to live as a gay man and examine his behavior, and critics saw that because these were his first public comments on his sexual orientation, uh, that, that, that his statement was an attempted deflection from Rap's comments and the allegations that come with them. Um, obviously, this has stirred up a significant amount of emotion in the last several weeks, considering the, uh, the allegations that have come to light about Harvey Weinstein and other members of the Star Trek family actually spoke up and, and commented on this. Uh, Jason Isaacs, who plays Captain Lorca on Star Trek Discovery, tweeted, The fierce, honest, brave Anthony Rapp at Albino Kid is his handle on Twitter. My on-screen irritation and off-screen inspiration. And uh, actor Wilson Cruz, who plays Dr. Hugh Culber, tweeted, Hashtag end sexual assault. Standing with all friends who shared their truths. I hope you find comfort knowing you've empowered many to speak. Uh, Discovery writer Ted Sullivan accused Spacey of taking a page out of the rhetorical playbook of the current POTUS by, quote, creating distraction to hide a scandal while concluding his thought by saying Kevin Spacey coming out is not the story. What he did is. And then the last statement I want to read is probably from one of the more prominent members of the Star Trek family, at least today, uh, from a neighboring timeline, actor Zachary Quinto tweeted an image of the following statement. He said, quote, it is deeply sad and troubling that this is how Kevin Spacey has chosen to come out, not by standing up as a point of pride in the light of all of his many awards and accomplishments, thus inspiring tens of thousands of LGBTQ kids around the world, but as a calculated manipulation to deflect attention from the very serious accusation that he attempted to molest one. I'm sorry to hear of Anthony Rapp's experience and subsequent suffering, and I'm sorry that Kevin only saw fit to acknowledge his truth when he thought it would serve him, just as his denial served him for so many years. May Anthony Rapp's voice be the one that is amplified here. Victims' voices are the ones that deserve to be heard. So, a, a lot to unpack, and certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of feelings that I'm sure are uh, coming up. But, um, Zachy, when you heard about this, what is your perspective on it? Well, I, I had a couple different thoughts. I think, I think number one, I'm, I'm glad that we're at a point where, um, this type of thing is being called out because obviously the last few weeks have seen a, a plethora of, of these very powerful and prominent people in the industry being, rightly outed for being sexual predators so so obviously it's terrible that this stuff has happened but the fact that you know the the worm has turned to the degree that now you know uh, that they're being exposed that's a good thing the other thing i thought of is that anthony rapp has been acting you know like like as we know from this incident since he was a kid and he carried this with him all this time and yet it certainly feels to me that his visibility as part of the Star Trek franchise has given him the platform where he can say this without fear of, of career repercussions. And, you know, sure. so, so that, that's something that I'm, I'm glad that he's able to say, because, because this is something that's been out there about Kevin Spacey sort of in the ether for seemingly ever. And, and it's either just been brushed aside or, 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 uh, people look the other way and in that sense uh, it feels like 
uh, Anthony Rapp will be for uh, the Kevin Spacey story, what Hannibal Burris was for, for Bill Cosby, where his voice ends up being the one that exposed it. I mean, obviously Hannibal Burris was not personally affected by what happened, but he, for whatever reason, his story broke through. I think Anthony Rapp the same way for Kevin Spacey. And, and you know, uh, it's it's not only wrong what he did, it, the, the deflection of, I'm sorry I nearly assaulted you, but by the way, I'm gay. How did he think that was going to play? I mean, that's, that's it's yeah. it's so, it's such a Kevin Spacey character thing to do. Like, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So that that's me. Yeah. Cicero? Yeah, you know, obviously uh allow me to to uh add my voice to the uh to the millions of of people that are supporting Anthony Rapp and 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 uh his bravery for coming forward and and obviously like like Zachy said, um the visibility of uh him being on Star Trek probably and and uh, coupled with uh, everything else that's going on with you know with regards to uh, you know hashtag me too and and huh. you know and everyone being so brave um, has given him the ability to to speak up and speak out about something that was clearly very traumatic to him uh, from you know thirty years ago uh, with without the fear of repercussion and and. That's, you know, I mean, I think that's great. And and I think from for just solely from my perspective, the first half of Spacey's acknowledgement and apology rang really true for me. But, the you know, the fact that that he said, well, look, if this is something that I did, I don't remember it. You know, it was over 30 years ago. I don't remember doing what it is that that I'm alleging that you're alleging that I did. But if I did, it was horrible. I'm sorry, you know, and you deserve an apology. Like, you know, I mean, that's that's something that he should have done. Uh, he should have taken the time out to extend privately, and then, of course, say publicly because the the forum in which all of this stuff was disclosed was public. Um, the the second part is just deplorable. Mm. Um, it, you know, the, the to 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 use this as an opportunity to out yourself um, as a way of possibly deflecting it is 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 cold and calculated in a way that makes the first paragraph of his apology ring hollow yes so you know it it, it was it was a weird thing to me and had he just said i i would feel more confident in in, in standing up and saying well you know maybe this was the thing that was kind of misunderstood and if they had talked about it privately then you know things could have been cleared up um outside of of course uh outside of the fact that that uh Anthony Rapp was 14 years old at the time. Um, so, you know, all of that stuff factors in. Um, but but I, I, I think that had he left it alone, had he stopped with, hey, I did this thing. I really messed up. Uh, I owe an apology. You know, it was 30 years ago. I don't remember. it, But, you know, that was wrong of me if I did it. Um, I think I think he would have. He would have come out looking a lot better and smelling a lot better had he had he not done that. Now, I I will I will say uh, I will take exception to one thing that you said, Chris, about Zachary, Zachary Quinto being perhaps the the uh, most well-known member of the LGBTQ com uh, community within George Takei, uh, the Star Trek franchise, because George Takei is is, you know, if you want to talk about someone who <laughs> who is is double plus brave. 
Um, here's a man who who tried his best to live his truth. Um, and on top of the truths of his of his life and his upbringing, uh, that's that that is a man uh, that that all all trekkers should should be proud of and and stand stand behind so yep that was a dunderheaded mistake on my part no no worries uh, of course i can't forget george decay i mean i met the man twice and i I was a child both times and i annoyed the hell out of nice oh my (laughs) (laughs) memories that that will stay with me forever but rachel anthony rap um I think it's really telling that Kevin Spacey's uh, his statement was like, I don't remember this. Like, this wasn't important to me, obviously. And I think that that is really telling about a lot of the things that happen is that men, some of these men aren't who, who, who do things that make people feel super uncomfortable don't even know that it's wrong. They're just... Like, you're not, like, making the decision in their head, like, like to do something wrong. They're just behaving as they have been taught is okay by society. And then it hurts people. It makes people feel traumatized. And, like, I, I really hate that that is, like, how, like, the culture allows and teaches men to behave. Um, and so I think it's really, really great that Anthony Rapp said something about it because that's how you change the culture is you say, hey, like when you did this, it made me feel like bad and uncomfortable and terrible and you should not have done that. And that like that's the only way that like everyone else knows that like, you know, you gotta you gotta ask before you do sex stuff to people. Okay, like just like we have to articulate this in 2017. That's the that's how far we have not come, you know. Right. Well, I mean, listen again, guys, you know, everyone, everyone that has been uh, uh, alleged of being a sexual predator in 2017 has has uh, found themselves on the on the bitter end of some really bad, you know, repercussions, rightfully so. Now, there was someone of prominence who was recorded admitting to be a sexual, admitting to be a sexual predator in 2016. And almost a year ago, he won the election to become the president of the United States. So, I mean, there 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 is something, there's something to be said about this coming out and this being a thing and and for people to really stand up and take notice. Um, but, you know, if we're going to do this as a society, we have to look at the totality of our society and and nip this type of stuff in the butt, um, you know, all the way around. And uh, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, there should be repercussions for for saying that that stuff yeah. at all levels. Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, for just from my perspective, and I hate that this is something that needs to be commented on again, because uh, on one of my other shows we had to talk about the the Weinstein allegations when they had just started to uh, to catch fire in the public. But I'll just echo a thought that I've expressed previously, in that 
situations and scenarios like this are an affront to human decency. And when you have someone, especially someone who's been carrying an experience like this for so long and is now finally in a position where he's able to articulate and express it along with the other victims that have come forward recently, we are, there's a sign that we are at least in a sense moving in the right direction. There's a long way to go. We have a lot of serious conversations to have about exactly what you said, Cicero, what our societal priorities are when it comes to this kind of behavior and how we hold people accountable. But at the end of the day, I think I speak for everybody here when we say that we are happy to stand with Anthony Rapp. We support him. We are proud of him for for saying the things that he did. We're proud of his cast members for standing by him. And uh, we will continue to watch him with great interest in the weeks and months and hopefully years ahead as he plays just a kick-ass character on a show that we all love. So uh, I think we're going to leave it there, uh, at least with that part of the discussion. Uh, but Mr. Rapp, we love you and, and thank you for coming forward. Uh, so let's move on to the actual episode discussion. Uh, episode seven of Star Trek Discovery, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Well, uh, let, let's, let's try and bring things up a few notes after that, shall we? And I think that this episode is a really good way to do that because Harry Mudd has returned. Uh, after infiltrating Discovery by hiding inside an endangered, quote-unquote, space whale, he uses a device that we later find out is a time crystal to trap Discovery and her entire crew inside a time loop in order to try and figure out what the USS Discovery's secret is in helping the Federation stay ahead of the Klingons in the war effort with the intent to ultimately sell the ship and its secrets to the Klingon Empire. Initially unbeknownst to them, though, Discovery's crew has an ace up their sleeve in the form of Lieutenant Paul Stamets, whose employment as the Spore Drive's navigator has given him the ability to exist outside of perceivable time, and he uses his newfound perception to discern Mud's plan at every loop. A lot of things happen, and in the end, we learn that Mud is on the run from his quote-unquote beloved Stella and her powerful father, and is handed over to them both in a decidedly one-sided happy reunion. Now, I realize that I kind of ran through the plot synopsis there, but that's because, almost entirely contrary to an aspect of our conversation in the last episode, this was basically a done-in-one. I mean, there were character consequences that I'm sure will reverberate through the rest of the season, but let's talk about that first. Should this episode serve as proof to viewers that Discovery is still able to do a relatively isolated episode from the larger narrative, or do we need more proof? Zachy, what do you think? I, I think I, I I was as I was watching it, I was like, wow, they're they're they're. It's like they made this episode to specifically refute the discussion we were having. Uh, in a previous episode, either last week or the week before, about how th- <laughs> there's no room for these one-offs, and and I'm I'm of two minds on it to be honest, because I feel like you know this is what is it like a ten episode season? I don't know how, how many episodes are there for the whole run. I think there's going to be fifteen in 15. total. So I, it's on the one hand, I'm like, do they have room for these one-offs? Like I I'd, I'd <laughs> rather they focus on the actual story because you know you you see the utility of that when. Like, for example, the third season of Enterprise, which was one long story, it's like, well, you had 24 episodes or whatever it was. So here's, you know, here's like the Western episode and here's the this and that. But they're still 
telling that overarching story. Here, it's like, well, you've got 10 less than that. So what? how does this advance the ball? And I feel like maybe it's going to be one of those things where once the season is done, we'll see whether there were seeds planted in this that that did play out over a broader uh, spectrum. Uh, I, I like that it's like a classic Trek-style story. I... I like that it had echoes of, of uh, you know, the Next Generation episode Cause and Effect. Uh, mm-hmm. it, I'm, I, I, I liked uh, Stamets more than I ever have. So, hey, <laughs> I'll file that in the win column, you know? There you go, yeah. Cicero, how about you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the first thought that I had when, when the credits started rolling was uh, Rachel was wrong. There will, there will, there. Not only uh, will there be a filler episode in Star Trek uh, Discovery, but it happened the very next week. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. I mean, so so immediately the my first thought after this episode was Rachel. So uh, very good, Rachel. You stuck <laughs> in my head. Um, so, but like, I've got to say that there were moments of this episode that I really enjoyed. Um, um, there, there was more comedy in this episode than, than all of the previous episodes combined. Uh, the fact that, the fact that I guess in the 24th century, classical music is nineties hip hop. That's okay with me. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I really dug the fact that we got to listen to the refugees, all stars play staying alive throughout the episode um and and you know i know that that wasn't uh that wasn't by accident that they chose the the song staying alive um sure but uh of the episode so far this was the one overall that i enjoyed the least and it and i think Mm. it was because um not only was it uh just kind of a procedural type type of episode but also because it was a procedural type it was a one of the a time loop procedural episode this early in the in the season in the in this and the franchise's run in the show's run um that i was like oh wow you know we we're we're jumping to this well already and you know obviously it it there was it served a, a purpose in the story but i don't know if i was either ready for it or if I necessarily enjoyed the fact that it was here right now, um, kind of as Zachy said, you know, we've we've only ha- we only have two more episodes before the fall finale. Um, could we right. have perhaps saved this for for another time? Okay, well, f- fair enough, Rachel. Um, I don't think this was a filler episode <laughs> because. For me, my definition of a filler episode is one that um, they needed to make because of budget concerns. Like I'm thinking specifically, there's a there's some X Files episodes where like they happen entirely within one set, or like the characters get right. trapped yeah, sure. uh, somewhere, and it was like that was because of budget concerns, and they were like they chose that script because it happened all in one area and right. it was cheap to film. And in Star Trek, that was the original series. That right. was the Menagerie, where they basically yeah, just they, reused they the cage. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and um, nor nor do I think that it was a. Uh, 
a script that they weren't sure about, but they needed to get to 26 episodes. So they were like, oh, we'll just throw this one in, which is what I think Masks was probably. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Like, I, I wouldn't call it a filler episode okay. by my definition, but, you know, your your mileage <laughs> may vary there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I I really liked it. I, I thought it was a great homage to a, a Trek trope. Mm-hmm. And um, it was entertaining, and I liked the humor, and it was great. Yeah, yeah see, and I, I really enjoyed it, too, because uh, the thing that seemed immediately notable to me about this episode is that the show took a break from the relative melodrama that we've seen in this season thus far and i really felt an old and familiar sense of fun that i have only ever gotten from star trek after watching this episode specifically like it felt very familiar in the roots of the franchise in the sense that it's catching all of the characters and the viewers in a web of sci-fi intrigue that leads to shenanigans that are only possible in the corridors of a starship. And that was something that I just, it it was infectious for me. But what do you guys think about the effectiveness of a more fun spirit pervading this episode specifically? Because obviously, you know, fun has been an element to some of the characters that we've seen thus far, but the show has had a darker tone overall that took a little bit of a break here. So, Zachy, what do you think about that aspect of it? Did you feel that kind of sense of fun that I'm alluding to, or did you feel something else? No, you, absolutely I did. And, and I, I liked that. I mean, uh, to be clear, I I, uh, I like that there's room in the narrative for these kind of uh, one-offs. And and I use one-off as a distinction from from Rachel, as you said, filler, because, because I do feel like there's seeds that are planted here that I would assume will... Uh, you know, pay off down the line. Certainly this isn't the last we're seeing of mud. I'm fairly certain of that. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, it, I think uh, above and beyond uh, the, the, the relationship stuff that we get with, with, with Burnham. I mean, as I said earlier, gosh, Stamets is like the VIP of this episode. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, the fun. Did you feel the fun? The Star Trek fun? <laughs> I did feel the Star Trek fun. Mm-hmm. And um, I like how the like interpretation of parties is like different. It's always like a reflection of like the era sure. that the the show is produced in. So like in our era, like a, a party is like dance music. But like in the 60s, like a party was like yeah. a cocktail party and Uhura is going to play her space harp. And <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I just, I liked that. Um, on the Enterprise D, yes. they go to recitals. Uh, yeah. That's their party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty rigid there in the 24th century. A little stuffy. A little stuffy. Um, yeah. Well, that I... But you felt it. I, I was, yeah, of course I felt it. I was having a great time. Although there was some dark stuff, like seeing Lorca get killed like five well, times. Yeah, I don't know. That was I was, was a little sad. It was it was kind of camp. Like I got more of a Paul Verhoeven kind of vibe on right. some of those kills than I did anything else. But Cicero, the did you feel the fun at all? And did that did that elevate it a little bit for you, or was it just kind of a miss of the mark tonally? So I spell fun. M U D D, and and every second he was on the screen, uh, specifically that Lorca Lorca killing montage, what that put a grin on my face. Um, it, you know, it is it was uh, 
you know, give me a dark comedy any any day of the week, and I'm a happy camper. And that was that was the like it was perfect, just beautiful satirical dark comedy right there. Like, oh man, you know, I've uh, what did what did uh, Mud say that I've I've killed you so often that it's starting to lose its fun. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> so like, it, and and to see that happen, um, especially like the one where he transports him into space, and he and Lucas, Lucas and he's like suffocating, he's just Lucas in the suffocating in, in deep space. <laughs> like those were those were amazing. Those were amazing. So, uh, I I mean, I really enjoy. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed all the characters. I really enjoy uh, Rain Wilson as 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 Harry Mudd. Um, I think that he brings an element to the show that there's there's a uh, there's a Mister like Middle Plixic. Uh, I'm saying his name a little wrong. Nixius Spitlick. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for Superman fans. You you saved me a pronunciation last week, so I'm here to pick one up for you this week. Oh, hey, thank you, thank you. Um, it, it, yeah, they, I mean, there's a sense of mischief, uh, and and just kind of uh, hijinks um, when whenever Harvey Mudd is is around and on this on the screen, and I'm you know like you never really know what to expect, and I love that. I really love that about his character, and I love that about uh, about the show, and and uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, there were there was just there was a lot of fun to be had. Um, well, and, you know, speaking to Mud specifically, I think the end of the show is where I felt it the most, just because the ending was so completely unexpected compared to where the episode started. Because you see him, like, killing people in the very beginning. You don't quite know where it's going. And then the way that it ended, it was almost like it was ripped tonally right out of the original series. And I loved it for that. You know, it felt very, very true to the roots of Star Trek. But... You know, as separate as the episode is in the larger scheme of things, uh, we also learned some pretty surprising revelations about Burnham, particularly as it relates to her love life. I mean, she's developing feelings for the mysterious and very handsome Lieutenant Ash Tyler and has serious difficulty expressing those feelings. But uh, what struck you guys about this revelation about Burnham's love life? As she told Stamets she's never been in love before. How did that strike you, Rachel? Suspiciously handsome Ash Tyler, <laughs> all, almost as if his face were created. <laughs> no, um, I I liked it. It it struck me as uh, in keeping with what I know about Burnham as a character. Um, I know more of her backstory from reading the um, Desperate Hours novel, um, and so in that novel, you learn she's had kind of a rough life um and so i it's not surprising to me that she didn't she didn't have time to fall in love and so she's kind of trying to figure it out as she gets feelings for this guy mm-hmm. so i also liked that they didn't they addressed the height difference between her and ash tyler by commenting on it instead of putting her in crazy like high boots or something <laughs> to like try and make it go away like yeah. I guess camera tricks you can hide that most of the time, but not when you're dancing. So. Right, true. Yeah, yeah. I was I was surprised because I had to look up Sonequa Martin Green's height, and she's only five foot four. I didn't realize. Wow. Like, okay, is he really really tall, or is she on the shorter side? And 
quite a uh, quite a differential there. But it, it also kind of worked, you know. It's, it says a lot about her how she can stand up to him when the situations call for it. But uh, Zachy, what did you think about the revelations about Burnham and the uh, the feelings that she's expressing with Lieutenant Tyler or having trouble expressing? Uh, you know, it it feels like they're seeding the the relationship growing for the betrayal, which I think all of us here sort of feel is going to be inevitable. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's a, you see the the you know it, you're doing movie math a little bit. It's like okay, we need we need them to string it out so that when they get together, it's like a big moment, and then one assumes that it'll make it that much more heartbreaking when when the heel turn uh, one assumes inevitably happens. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Cicero? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm always, I'm just kind of amazed that assuming that we are correct in our uh, assumptions of uh, Lieutenant Tyler, I'm just amazed at how human he is. You know, I mean, more so like he is teaching humanity to Michael Burnham. Um, you know, he's, he's, he reacts more like a human than she does. She's obviously grown, uh, you know, her formative years were with Vulcans yeah, and, and then, and then, you know, the last seven plus years, uh, she's kind of reintegrated herself into human society, but she's still relearning that society. And, and, you know, to the point of her not being in love, it wasn't a surprise to me. Um, you know, it, it completely makes sense based on who her character is and uh, where she was raised and how she was raised uh, that that, you know, something as illogical as love, because, I mean, there's nothing really more illogical than love. Um, yeah. And when you try and apply a logical procedure to it, then I think it manifests itself as something of uh, violent repression. If a mock time is any authority right. on that whatsoever. Right. right. Huh. So, yeah. So, I mean, it just makes sense that 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 wouldn't be something that that kind of factored, you know, factored into how she uh, built relationships. Um, and it, it's what's what has been interesting has been watching. Uh, Sonequa uh, Martin Green play Burnham with this kind of she she seems so self assured uh, throughout throughout all of the episodes and it's been Tyler that's that's kind of given her some doubt and some pause mm-hmm. um, about how she's supposed to do things and that's been interesting to watch the character grow in that way. Well, and Tyler is apparently reciprocating at least to a degree. Uh, sure. So do you guys basically think then that this is being this is a, a, a Jenga tower that's being set up to be knocked over? Is that the inevitability that we're that we're kind of forecasting here? Do you, it, could this go another way, Rachel? Probably. It's probably <laughs> like Zachy said, like setting up the heel turn. It's just there's a lot of things that make me like question my assumption that he's a Klingon and he's he's really he's a really good spy <laughs> like he's really good at imitating human behavior um and it, it just it it makes i don't know i never got the impression that Vok was like that smart or like adept at like social cues or anything socially inclined like right? even yeah. in uh klingon society so 
Well, I mean, uh, conceivably, I don't we don't really know what it means to have sacrificed everything yet. Right? True. Maybe he believes he's a human. I was about to say, I wonder if it's one of those like there's like a, a you know, like a code word or something that'll like activate him, you know, sure. like he's a sleeper. Yeah, like, like Order 66 or something, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a very interesting got, point. Cicero? He's got he's to gotta get to the seventh inning. Uh, <laughs> and then and they push the button and he, and he kills the queen. Uh, <laughs> I must kill the queen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I that. <laughs> oh, uh, old men unite. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, I, I mean... I've I've got to be I've got to remain steadfast on this belief that uh, you know that that Volk and Tyler are one and the same until we see the inevitable interview with Javid Iqbal. Right, it's it's Shazad Latif and with a mustache <laughs> and, and, and the Groucho glasses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> or they're just you know, saving they, it, right? They're saving it right. until after the season finale where this yeah. poor actor is like, they kept me in a basement in CBS for six months and now I can finally talk to all you assholes. Ah, freedom. Freedom. <laughs> maybe maybe it's a machine like uh, like Steve Urkel and Stefan Urkel. <laughs> oh. But yeah, so I'm like, I'm waiting for the the eventual heel turn and then like the I, like I've got to see the spy montage mm-hmm. of of Lieutenant Tyler you know or or Volk becoming Lieutenant Tyler and just the amount of of learning that he had to do from Laurel's family from that matriarchy of uh, you know of just like intense intense training um yeah and maybe Rachel's maybe Rachel's hypothesis is is one that that really works. Like maybe he doesn't know that he's mm-hmm. uh, a Klingon. I'll, I'll present know? an alternative one. Uh, maybe oh. maybe Valk learned from Ash Tyler because I'm reasonably sure that this detail-oriented human identity would be assumed and not created. You know. Oh yes. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm reasonably sure that Ash Tyler at some point whether he is now or whether he was before was an actual lieutenant in Starfleet that either was killed or captured during the battle at the binary stars, presuming, you know, this actually ends up shaking out. But why don't we move on to the next point? Because perhaps the most entertaining character in this episode, and we've alluded to it already is Paul Stamets because we got a glimpse at his change in behavior last week but now that the show has fully explained that he's the primary pilot of the spore drive, we also get to see that his personality has been, uh, well, if not altered outright, at the very least heightened in more outgoing and peaceful and positive ways. And he even gives Burnham a valuable segment of life advice concerning what it's actually like to fall in love. And I was so charmed by this. I mean, first of all, I think most of us were in relative agreement when we watched the third episode that this guy is an asshole. You know, th- uh-huh. like, how are we supposed to find an end to him? I mean, he's not going to be someone that we necessarily root for. And then the first time we see him in this episode, when Burnham bumps into him, he just hugs her. He's like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> 
why would you apologize? And I was just like so charmed by this about face that's clearly affecting him in a way that may not end up being positive. But there are clearly positive implications on the crew that's happening and specifically with Burnham. So Paul Stamets, how is Paul Stamets striking everybody? Cicero, why don't we start with you? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm i Team Stamets. I mean, I love that dude. Um, You're just for I, everybody I, who's used as the spore drive pilot, it seems. Just- right, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm all about the spore drive because, you know, I mean, uh, long may they reign until it doesn't because we know it's going away. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love the the arc of of Paul Stamets. You know, he's he's been a dick. He's still even as even Giddy Stamets is still kind of a dick, but but he's awesome. He's you know he's he's totally awesome and and you know the the fact that the the like the secrets of the universe are kind of opening themselves up to him and he's learning them and is still trying to kind of integrate you know still remain integrated with with the crew is is going to be something that I'm I'm going to watch with a lot of interest going forward. Uh, I, I will say that I have a lost like theory about the series that I will not share right now. Okay. All right. Huh. Yes. Fair enough. Zachy, Paul Stamets. Well, like I said, yeah, I, I, I've been saying it uh, throughout the episode. I mean, we're, we're getting so many insights into him. I, uh, I, just the, the the human side of him is coming out thanks to this sort of inhuman process. Uh, I do wonder then what the what one assumes what the you know the process of ha- having this removed from him, which I assume is going to happen, what that's going to do to him uh, in terms of personality. And I think it, it's kind of the same thing. They're setting us up to really fall in love with this version of him, and then they're going to take that away. Yeah, man. And That's my guess. There was definitely a, a very uh, eventful kind of illusion in the next week segment. I hope it's not for Stamets, though. But Rachel, Lieutenant Stamets, how's he strike you? One of my favorite like little things in the episode was um, the doctor uh, sort of responding to Stamets, and he's like, "I'm so sorry for my partner." <laughs> <laughs> like his. His like sort of exasperated face was uh, uh really funny to me, and I just I kind of wondered like what's his life like now? Like <laughs> yeah. he's, he's gotta like live with groovy Stamets <laughs> when you fell in love with uh, grumpy Stamets. Uh, it's gotta be gotta be an adjustment. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Well, and uh, for the first time, we really didn't really uh, we didn't really get much of a perspective on Captain Lorca. Captain Lorca was kind of uh, just along for the ride in this episode. Obviously, we talked about how we saw him die in increasingly creative and eventful ways, but uh, overall, we didn't get a whole lot of more insight into Captain Lorca. But I think we've kind of managed to go around most of the broad strokes of the episode. Uh, what about other characters that made an impression on you guys? Rachel, you had mentioned that you loved seeing party cadet Tilly. Like, <laughs> yeah, I like drunk Tilly. Drunk She's... Tilly charmed you. Yeah, I don't know. She just reminded me of like people that I know in real life who are just, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing with their lives, but they know that they're in a musician phase right now. <laughs> um, I just thought it added a really nice layer to her character that, you know, 
like she's, identifiable humanity. Yeah, like she's like a she's like a young adult, like mm-hmm. um, doing stuff that young adults in you know in college or I don't know how the Starfleet Cadet program works, but <laughs> um, that young people do. So yeah, yeah. She came across nice like, layer of uh, world building, I guess. Yeah, sure. What about you guys? Uh, Cicero, did any other characters jump out at you uh, this episode? I mean, it was relatively tightly focused on on the core group, but did anyone uh, jump out at you? No, I, you know, it it was it was it was tightly focused on the core group and, and they, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and outside of Tilly, uh, Tilly is uh, drunk or not. She's very hot to try. So um, it's going to be interesting to see. <laughs> see what happens with that sure zaki uh yeah nothing really jumped out i i did find it, it, it amusing to see tilly sort of getting drunk as a skunk because i was like oh okay i guess uh, they haven't invented synthahol yet you know right. <laughs> that seems like that starship <laughs> standard uh, uh that comes later i guess Maybe because of Tilly. Maybe yeah, she's sure. the, the impetus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she inspires Dr. Kolber to uh, to do some experimentation with an alcohol right. substitute. No, I mean, uh, the party in general, I thought, was a, a nice touch. And obviously we saw it a lot. But, you know, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities on the ship that we see outside of Next Generation and, you know, maybe risa and some of the other shows i guess technically in quarks but this felt like a different perspective on what starship personnel do in their downtime and uh i i I, so i was personally pretty charmed by it i thought that the absence of uh saru at the party was interesting um i guess he's he's not really he, Saru does not party. Saru doesn't get down, I guess. Like, the loud music would just make his threat gangly. He'd be going all over the place. He'd be like, ah. You know, it would have been kind of funny, though, if, if some someone from across the uh, the party room was making eyes at him, and then you saw the ganglia come down, <laughs> and then he's like, okay, I gotta go. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, it was, it was fun. And really, at the end of the day, I think that's the, the feeling that I associate most with this. So... It to me this episode. Why don't we wrap up our thoughts and I'll begin. I mean, to me this episode got to the spirit of a lot of complaints that I've seen from uh, from other hardcore Star Trek fans, and that there is no fun anymore. Like there's only the melodrama. This is the DCEU of Star <laughs> Trek, and uh, and I, I, I this episode proves that notion entirely incorrect in my estimation i mean if it can have the sense of fun that's bookended by this party but also end in a way that is totally reminiscent of some of the goofier episodes of the original series then that's cool i mean the fact that the show can pivot between those things i mean any good show should be able to what without losing the essence of what it is and to me that's what this episode exactly did but rachel what are your final thoughts on magic to make the sanest man go mad Oh, it was cool. <laughs> um, it, you know, it used a lot of uh, pieces of Trek trope that were that were great, and they fit together. And I think you can totally have sort of encapsulated episodes with a and have a like sort of myth mythology arc happening as well. Mm-hmm. Um, X-Files did it for 10 years. So yeah. monster of the week and mythology episodes. So 
True enough. I think that's a good a good formula. Sure. Cicero, final thoughts on the episode. Um, I you know I thought it was I thought it was another good showing. I, I liked it uh, less than I liked some of the other ones, but I think that has to do more with uh, my curmudgeonly sensibilities than uh, <laughs> than the quality of the show. Um, it did make me go back and watch Cause and Effect. Um, and mm-hmm. it, and the thing that that uh, that really stood out to me was the fact was how much more harmony in 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 in, uh, in this time of conflict the Enterprise has, and you know TNG has had overall than than Discovery. Um, it was it was quite jarring, but uh, but hey man, I'm lo- I'm loving the show. I'll be back here next week. Excellent. Zaggy, finish us out of the episode discussion. What were your final thoughts on this one? Uh, it's another entry in the proud tradition of Star Trek's involving some kind of time-traveling, tra- time-tripping shenanigans, uh, very much in the vein of cause and effect from The Next Generation. So uh, I'm glad to see Discovery take its place uh, within that Star Trek subgenre. Very well said. Very well said. Well, uh, hopefully you guys at home enjoyed uh, the episode as much as we did, to varying degrees, of course. But uh, we have a couple of elements of listener feedback and questions to get to, uh, so why don't we open up the old communicator? So the first question that we have is from a, a longtime listener, Aaron Henley, and he asks us, if Mud's time travel reset the clock to the same point on the timeline, shouldn't any events that were not interfered with have still occurred? For example, the guy Stamets runs into spilling all the stuff over the floor. He should have still been wandering around in every scene of Burnham Tyler walking to the turbo lift after the call to the bridge, again, prior to outside inter- interference, though time travel makes my head hurt, so I just went with it. Also, I really hope no one mistook those dark matter orbs for gumdrops. I mean, they're lying right next to the fortune cookies. I'd have tried one not knowing any different. And, uh, yeah, I think I probably would have too, Aaron. I mean, as far as the specifics of your question and the way that the time travel works, it seemed like the episode kind of bounced around between the different occurrences and that there wasn't necessarily strict continuity between each loop. But, uh... I think your second attitude is mostly correct. You know, you kind of just have to have to go with it. Rachel? Um, also, um, it, it's called chaos theory. Oh. I, I actually don't know if that applies. But <laughs> randomness. So maybe like there's some randomness where like every time you reset the time loop, there's like some events occur and some don't occur because mm-hmm. there's like a sort of stochastic uh, random switching of what's going to happen well there was a little bit of inconsistency too in how much recall the characters had between each time jump uh obviously with stamets and mud being the exceptions but overall i i think that your observations they're certainly not incorrect but it sounds like they were just kind of playing with a little bit of a different set of rules so uh you guys have anything to chime in on before the next one all right next question from kevin mowry He says, quote, Discovery spent two episodes establishing the Klingon War and then two more setting up the spore drive as the two big themes of the show's plot for this season. The last three episodes have dealt with those increasingly less with both the war and the drive used more as background elements and the main plots of the episodes being more episodic and less serialized. 
Do you feel that that is a step in the right or wrong direction for discovery? And this is something that we touched on a little bit at the top of the episode. But, Zachy, what do you think? I think, uh, as as we said last time, I like the idea that we've got multiple tiers of story. We've got ABC plots. Uh, I think that what makes Discovery different from other serialized shows, such as The Walking Dead, and I only use that because of Seneca Martin-Green, is, you know, The Walking Dead is a show where you're pretty much stuck in one scenario, and so you have these sort of boring episodes that are feel like they're they're just treading water in this same, you know, in between zombie attacks, right? The thing with Star Trek is you have, like, a universe-spanning war going on, but you have the ability to be like, oh, here's our, like, time anomaly episode, because you're in space dealing with the unknown. New stories are, you're, you're, you're flying through new story possibilities every week. And so I, I love that balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good perspective. Cicero, you have anything you want to add? Uh, I just want to say that Kevin's a really smart man. And uh, I think that it's a little bit of both um, that uh, that even though we are, it does seem like we're, uh, you know, they're dipping their toe in the procedural and the and the serialized uh, uh, waiting pools. I think that there is there's both of those things happening. And I think that uh, ultimately uh, the things that that Kev Kev thinks are taking a backseat will uh, will play will feature pretty prominently uh going forward um and and i think that if they continue to beat us over the head with the klingon war and the spore drive that uh it wouldn't have the same type of uh you know story resonance uh towards the end of the season when they have whatever the big reveal is uh, for Mm -hmm. both of those stories sure Very well said. Well, we have one more question slash comment from a listener named Rob O'Connor, who I know uh, he's a huge Star Trek fan. So I'm really glad to have him as a listener. He says, quote, just wanted to say I'm thoroughly enjoying the show and I'm really appreciative that I get to listen to it free of charge every week. A previous listener described it as a love-in, and I couldn't disagree more. The show has a great balance of enthusiasm and excitement for Discovery, tempered with necessary constructive criticism. This is what makes the podcast such a delight to listen to when so much of the discussion surrounding this series is sadly mired in blind hatred due to people's issues with its dubious canonicity and the weight of people's love of the other series unfairly resting on its shoulders. This brings me to my question. Rachel made an interesting point in episode 3 regarding the Klingons and how their design is so different from previous iterations and how maybe the showrunners just changed it because makeup is better nowadays. Personally, that's how I'm approaching Discovery as a whole. It's a series being made in 2017 with a higher budget than any preceding Trek show, and the advances in prosthetics and the increased budget should reflect that rather than the series having to stringently tie itself to the anchor of canon. Star Trek fans forget that Star Trek is quite probably the only popular franchise where so much of its increasingly frequent output was controlled by the same creative voices for the guts of 20 years, namely the era starting with The Next Generation and ending with Enterprise, and the continuity reflected that. Any other franchise would usually endure a reboot or two in that time. My question is this. Should fans overall be more forgiving of aesthetic changes such as different uniforms, ship designs, technology, etc., or should canon always be king? Now, excellent question, Rob. Thank you. And, you know, it's, it's something that we've kind of touched on before. 
uh, I think most of us generally feel, and please jump in, guys, if I'm incorrect, but I think most of us generally feel that whatever's best for the show should come first. You know, I mean, I've spoken at length over the course of every episode of this show about continuity, how much I love it, how much it can be a strange tie on what the show might be capable of doing in the future, uh, and how deep into the weeds I can get when it comes to Star Trek. I mean, my grandma bought me the Star Trek encyclopedia when I was like eight, and I read it almost every day until I was 16. So, you know, I mean, it's going to rub off on me at some point, and I'm only kind of exaggerating with that. But, uh, I mean, where the show has shown its strength, I think, so far, has been in its invocation of continuity where appropriate. And I think last week's interactions between Sarek and Michael were a perfect example of that. You know, it embraced something that we've seen before while still shining a light on an aspect of characters that we thought we knew really well uh, and let us see them in a slightly different way. So canon, at least from my perspective, shouldn't always be king. I mean, it's nice that it's there. And if they really didn't want to have anything to do with it, then they probably would have done a reboot, as you suggest. But since they didn't, the fact that they can use it to its advantage, to the show's advantage... Uh, says a lot about the capabilities of Discovery going forward. But Rachel, what do you think about this? Yes, fans should be more forgiving of aesthetic changes. Does that mean they're not going to bother me? Probably not. They're still going to bother me. (laughs) But does that mean that I'm right for being bothered? No. No. (laughs) Fair enough. Cicero, what do you think? Yeah, I I mean, uh, canon, canon is important. Um, because it it gives it gives the viewer uh, uh, some some background history, some some foundation in the universe, and you know, and obviously that's that's so important when you're when you're building on top of a universe is is that uh, the fan comes in understanding a, a certain set of rules, and it's important to kind of follow those rules to to a certain level. Um, but again, I I, I look at this show. And I, I'm trusting the writers. I'm trusting the showrunners. They went in. They they purposefully picked a time period, um, and they purposefully picked the things that they put within that time period, um, with with full knowledge of everything that's that lives around that time in that time period within within the 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 chronology of of this universe. So I, I I believe that they have a plan. They have to, right? Sure. Zachy, want to close us out of this conversation? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I think I think that the the joy of the Star Trek universe is the fact that it is this thing that builds and builds and builds on top of itself. I think look at the Kelvin films. The Kelvin films were created in a way that allows for them to both reboot while specifically existing within the broader Star Trek canvas. And that's that's something special and unique, and it really sets it apart from the majority of these fictional universes, such as DC and, and even Marvel, where there are these constant resets. Uh, I, I don't view this show as being this serial... Uh, uh, you know, offender as far as violating canon, because to me, uh, you know, and maybe this is just too too generous, but I'm kind of like... Unless it's specifically, like, 
undermining something that was outright stated. So in other words, if if any previous Star Trek had said, there has never been such a thing as spore drive, never, I tell you, as Captain Picard waves his <laughs> fingers to the heavens, then you say, well, hold on a second. But here, it's like just the absence of confirmation is not, uh, you know, negation, right? So uh, to me, I, I look at this the same way I look at... Uh, you know, the Enterprise uh, did the whole thing with the Zindi attack. And, and, you know, the complaint people had there is like, well, they never mentioned the Zindi attack on the original show. And it's like, well, like how we're like 15 years removed from September 11th. Do we talk about that every day right. in our day to day life? Right. You know, uh, how many episodes of The Next Generation mentioned Captain Kirk by name, even though he's one of the most legendary people of all time? So you just say, well, it's a fictional universe that they are building as they go, and they're filling in the gaps as they go, and we have to be willing to roll with that a little bit. So I, none of the stuff that people are really up in arms about really bothers me, whether we're talking about uniforms or the, the look of the show, uh, the ships or the look of the Klingons. It's like, look, it is fiction, so there, there needs to be give and take. We expect the creatives to be somewhat consistent, but we also need we as the audience to kind of roll with it too. And then, so hopefully, you kind of meet in the middle, and that's how you get, uh, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Very well said. Very well said, as usual. Thank you, sir. Well, and thank you to everybody that uh, submitted questions. It's always nice to hear from people who do listen to the show. But that's actually going to. Uh, Close us out of episode six of Discovery Discovery Debrief. I can't even say the show's title. Discovery Debrief. That's the show we're on, right? I'm losing track. We need we need a we time loop so you can redo that. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, well, that that's going to do it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. If you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook or your podcasting app of choice. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it is posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed so you can come along with us next week to discuss Discovery's eighth episode. So for Zachy, for Cicero, for Rachel, I am Chris. Thank you so much for listening, and please go boldly, my friends. Mm-hmm.